This morning we're in John 8. We're going to pick up there actually where we left off in verse 2. John chapter 8 verse 2. And if we're turned there together, shall we as we do stand out of respect for the word of God as I read our portion of scripture this morning. It says, Now early in the morning he, that's Jesus, came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that, we sh- that she should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And Father, we... Ask as we open the word of God this morning as an act of worship, continuing now to worship in spirit and truth, we ask that the truth of your word would have its greatest impact in our hearts by your Holy Spirit's ministry, that he would prepare us and that by your spirit you would speak to us what it is that you want to say to each one of us, Lord. We don't want to hear wiser, persuasive words of a man. We want to experience that demonstration of your spirit and your power speaking directly to our hearts. Teach us and speak to us, Lord. We ask, believing you will, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, how is it that you handle sin, whether it be in your life when you fail, as we all do, or when someone else, perhaps, that you're attached to or connected to, fails in sins? Sin, which obviously is, by definition, doing what is wrong by rebelling against God's holy standard, whether it's in our thoughts, whether it's in our attitudes, whether it's in our actions, or whether it's in our words or something we say. Sin is something we all have and we all will get entangled in from time to time. Now, thankfully, the good news is this, is Jesus, God's son, came to this earth in his love for us to help us with our universal sin problem. And this passage illustrates that reality very beautifully. In this story, we see different people, and I take note I say that from the onset, not just one person. We see different people, the woman and the religious leaders as well here, Both of them, all of them, entangled in different forms of sin. And we learn how Jesus handles people who are caught in sin. That's what this passage teaches us. Whether it is sexual sin or some moral failure, like the woman in our story, 
or whether it's like the religious leaders who were guilty here, we see, of the sin of hypocrisy, deception, of cold-heartedness and a critical spirit, of being troublemakers who are actually using another person in an abusive and unhealthy way for their own selfish advantage to try and trap Jesus. No matter what the form of sin is, Jesus demonstrates to us here in this passage how he handles anyone who is caught in sin. A few things we see from a bird's eye perspective is that Jesus wants each person to realize and recognize their own sin. We're often great at identifying other people's sins. I say to couples a lot of times when I meet with them, many times over marital counseling over the years, I always look at couples and it seems like in almost every time I meet with a couple, I say, you are really good at confessing his sins and you're really great at confessing her sins. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we're to confess our own sins. So Jesus wants us to recognize our own sin He also wants to release people from the punishment of their sin. That's the heart of Jesus. He wants to release people from the punishment we deserve for our sin. And also he wants to remove people from their practice or participation in sin. That's why he says at the end of this section to this woman, go and sin no more. Stop what you're doing. I release you from the punishment, but please stop the practice of what you're doing. The backdrop of our story, which sort of gives to us the running pace into it, the Feast of Tabernacles has just now come to a close. We saw the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. Thousands of worshipers have now returned back to their house. And it tells us there in verse 1 that Jesus himself went over to the Mount of Olives, which was just outside Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley there. And it seems the Mount of Olives was sort of a location that Jesus liked to go to to spend quiet times alone. Maybe like some area you have where that's kind of your place where you like to just go and have some time alone, your time of solitude, maybe to spend some time with God. Well, Jesus, it seems, the Mount of Olives was where he liked to go. The Garden of Gethsemane was in that area. And perhaps it was at this point Jesus going and spending some time of solitude with his father. That would make a lot of sense because at this point in Jesus's ministry within the last few months before the cross, as we've been seeing together, opposition and resistance to Jesus and his ministry is at an absolute intense peak at this point. The religious leaders not only want to harm him and persecute him, but they actually want to arrest him. And it even tells us in the Bible they're looking to kill him at this point. So he's dealing with a lot of antagonism and resistance. Perhaps he pulls away to this quiet place over at the Mount of Olives there to just have some time to to talk things through with his father, to be renewed and to be refreshed so that he can stay on mission and remain faithful the last few months Uh, as he's about to prepare for severe suffering on the cross and then his death. Now, at that point, we pick up in verse 2 in our text. Look at it again. It says, now, early in the morning, the next day, it says he came again back over into the temple area there in Jerusalem, and all the people came to Jesus, and he sat down and taught them. So Jesus here does what is very customary Among Jewish rabbis in that day in the temple, typically they would go into the temple area and they would position themselves either in one of the courtyard areas or sometimes even on the large stone steps leading up to the temple structure. And after a Jewish rabbi would position themselves, typically they would sit down, they would stand when they would preach 
or prophesy or proclaim something, but they typically sat when they were teaching and then interested listeners or if they already had followers would then assemble around the teacher as they were sitting there and the teacher would begin to speak to them things about spiritual matters. So as morning comes, we have Jesus here. He enters into the temple. He sits down, his disciples, and it seems to indicate here a rather large crowd. It says many people uh, came to Jesus and he sits down and begins to teach them about spiritual things. Now, let me just say here, as we look at verse two, that scene demonstrates a picture, I believe, of what should happen as people assemble at the house of God for worship. Take notice, particularly three very simple things. Number one, Jesus's presence was among his worshipers. It says that Jesus was among them there in the temple. Secondly, people are coming to Jesus It says there in verse 2 that people came to him. They were coming to Jesus. And thirdly, people are being taught about spiritual life and matters. And and let me just say, I think all three of those things are important components and should be what is happening when people assemble at God's house for times of worship. The presence of Jesus should very be evident and very clear in the midst of God's people. Jesus said, when two or three gather in my name, I'm there in the midst. Revelation chapter two and three, we see Jesus in the midst of the lampstands or in the midst of his church. When people gather for worship, people should be coming for and seeking Jesus. Not a really great guy that stands behind a box or talks or a really cool, slick church or a great you know, place with phenomenal programs. No, people should be coming for Jesus. That's why people should be assembling when they assemble because they want to come seek Jesus and, and worship Jesus. Well, 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 I don't know. I can't find a good reason to go to church. I'm in a bad mood. Well, for, go for Jesus. That's why we should be going to church to worship Jesus, to seek Jesus. And thirdly, when God's people assemble at the house of God, there should be teaching of the people about spiritual matters and spiritual things, educating and training people spiritually by the teaching of the word of God. And can I say where those things exist, sin that often creeps into all of our lives will wonderfully be effectively addressed and handled properly. If the presence of Jesus is in our midst, if we're here seeking Jesus and we're being taught the word of God and the things of God, sin will be dealt with in our lives in a very healthy way. And we all need that in all of our lives. Where those things may perhaps be absent in God's house, the house of God becomes nothing more really than just a local social hall. It's just like the Moose Lodge. It's just a place where people get together that have friendships and maybe there are some good programs and, you know, we could do some fun things together and even have some self-help programs and fun things to do. Yet people will remain spiritually and morally unhealthy and families and individuals will live dysfunctionally because they're not meeting Jesus, they're not experiencing the Lord and they're not being taught the truth about spiritual and moral matters. Well, here's this scene, if you would. Picture in your mind as we go into our story, Jesus is in the temple, and if you would, 
He's got a Bible study going. There's a large gathering assembled around him. And that's the backdrop now for this very abrupt disruption that happens in the temple precincts there with Jesus. It says in verse 3, as our story continues, then the scribes and the Pharisees. Then the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes, remember, were those who hand-copied the scriptures and even taught the people their meanings. The Pharisees were that elite religious sect who strictly lived according to the very letter of the law of God. They began very well, but they got very off track after time historically. They lived strictly in adherence to the letter of the law, but more than that, they also ritualistically observed all the added traditions that they then brought along with just what the law of God said itself. So they were a very ritualistic group and because of that they became very self-righteous and arrogant and quite heartless because of their very legalistic bent in the way they lived their lives. So these two groups, the scribes and Pharisees, they represent, if you would, the religious establishment of the day. And at this time, they're very antagonistic to Jesus. They actually want to kill Jesus. They're jealous of his following at this point. So verse 3, look at the story. The scribes and Pharisees, it says all of a sudden now, this disruption, they brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they then began to say to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. The very act... Verse 5, now Moses in the law commanded us that she should be stoned. But what do you say? Verse 6, we read, this they said, however, notice, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him, to accuse Jesus. So as this disruption begins now, notice the religious leaders, they rudely interrupt Jesus in the midst of his teaching not in any way because they have a sincere desire for some help or really because they're trying to get a proper interpretation of what to do. They strictly have a selfish agenda to ensnare and trap Jesus. Please don't miss the importance the Holy Spirit tells us there in verse 6. Look at it. This they did testing Jesus that they might have something of which to accuse Jesus. This is what their agenda is. In other words, this whole episode is just a setup to bring down Jesus. It's just a plot or a trap. They care absolutely nothing about this woman that they're selfishly using in this situation. She was just their pawn. They're just rudely and cruelly using her as a device for orchestrating their crooked agenda. They're really not looking for spiritual counsel in regards to understanding what Moses said in the scripture they're just trying to bait jesus to say something wrong that could be ammunition they could then use to accuse him in this situation so keep in mind as we're looking at this together jesus discerns their agenda he knows what's going on in their hearts he's fully aware of their wicked and sinful intent even in this whole process so as we look at what happens here first of all it says to us that they bring this woman caught in the very act of adultery, they set her in the midst of this whole gathering of people that's assembled around Jesus there and they begin to publicly accuse her, broadcasting her sin to a numerous amount of people who are there as onlookers and they even then begin to demand her severe punishment for her moral failure and though she was guilty of failure and of sin, you want to talk about some cruel treatment and public humiliation 
of a person who's just had a major failure in their life? I mean, imagine if you would, by way of illustration, we're here, we're assembled in God's house and we're having a worship meeting. It's somewhat conducive to a, you know, a quiet, peaceful atmosphere. And all of a sudden, the back door opens behind us and here come you know, a, a few of the ushers from outside and they're dragging in some person, kicking and perhaps screaming and resisting and throw them down in the center aisle here before the pulpit and all of a sudden begin to say, this person was just caught and, and they just begin to unload and, and tell everyone exactly what they were just... I mean, the shame of that, the, the, the awkwardness. I mean, the, could you imagine how awkward that would be for everyone involved and the public humiliation, the, the cruelty of something like that? I mean, I don't get the sense here in this story that this woman is humbly and cooperatively participating in the process. I probably envision it's quite the opposite that the religious leaders are dragging her in. I, I sense kind of a chaotic disruption as they're probably having this quiet. And then all of a sudden there's this noise off in the distance in the temple precincts as it gets closer and closer. Probably everybody's kind of starting to get distracted. What's going on here as the religious leaders are probably pulling her in an embarrassment and shame of what's just transpired. She's probably reluctantly resisting the whole process if she's like any one of us as she's just got caught in the very act, it says, of her own sexual sin. Again, are her clothes all disheveled, half-dressed? She's resisting and perhaps screaming as they're forcing her into the temple and there's all this antagonism between them and abruptly forced to go into the temple to be now dealt with. And she's sort of cast down, it says, right in the midst of Jesus and everyone else who was there assembled, shaming and disgracing her for her sinful deed. And if that weren't enough, verse 4 says, then they begin to say out loud, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So they publicly announce exactly what she's done, further broadcasting her failure and her sin to a larger group of people, no doubt just making her feel and look even worse than she probably already does for her failure and grave mistake and boldly saying, we caught her right in the act of adultery itself. Now listen, adultery is the sin of having sexual relations with someone other than the person that you are married to or having sexual relations with someone that is married to another person. And God's word does clearly say, you shall not commit adultery. And it does not matter what the reasoning may be. It does not matter what the circumstances may be leading up to it. Adultery is wrong. It is sin. It is not a love affair. It is lustful, selfish indulgence. It is wrong. Adultery is wrong. The Bible teaches that, honestly, any form of, of sexual sin, not just adultery, any form of sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 6 in the Bible as a whole teaches that sexual sin, honestly, in any form, is very destructive in many ways in our lives. It brings painful consequences and problems both to its participants and its victims. And then add into that adultery because it selfishly disregards God's sacred covenant of the marriage relationship. You then add into that Error, another measure of grievousness in its act and destructiveness. 
I encourage you, write in your notes or read later on Proverbs chapter 6 and 7 and see what the Bible says of the, the grievous problems that come as a result. Read Matthew chapter 19. And this is why in the Old Testament, adultery, remember, was one of a few capital crimes in the nation of Israel. The sin or crime of adultery carried with it the death sentence in the Old Testament law. That is why, verse 5 here, look at it, why they are adamantly saying, and justifiably so to a sense, now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Well, they're referring to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, where there it says in the Bible, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, the adulterer, and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So please understand, according to Old Testament law, what they were saying was correct. This woman did deserve to die. That was the judicial sentence and punishment for the sin and both crime of adultery. Judicially, this could have resulted in her losing her life, being stoned to death. Now, they cast this woman down, they quote the word of God, and then they start to say to Jesus, okay, so what do you say? Now again, they're using the scripture in a distorted way because they're not really caring about the situation. They're just trying to trap Jesus. We'll talk about this moment in what they're doing here. And can I just say, that's really sick. That's very sick when people not only have twisted ulterior motives, but when you start using the scripture with an ulterior motive for your own selfish agenda, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. So they throw this woman down. They say to her, look, the law says this is the death sentence. She deserves to die. What do you say? Again, they're not really looking for help in applying the scripture because verse 6, the Holy Spirit says, this they only said, testing Jesus. So they might have something not to accuse her, look at it, but to accuse him. Now, here's what's going on. They think they've just caught Jesus in what we might call a catch-22 situation, which is basically where no matter what you say or what you do, you're wrong both ways. So they say, well, what do you say? They think no matter what he says or does, all right, we have got him. He is stuck now, and we're going to have ammunition to accuse him and sabotage him. See, if Jesus says, let her go, don't stone her, then at that point, he appears as someone who does not uphold the law of God. And they would say, you're a false prophet. You're not a true teacher of the word of God because you disregard what the law of God says. And of course, that would discredit Jesus as the Messiah, as well as a godly good teacher. And, and he would lose his following. So if he says, let her go, he doesn't uphold the law. He loses followers. He discredits himself. If he says to them, you know, you are right scripturally. Let's lay down the law and let's execute her. Now he appears harsh and unloving. And as someone who is cruel and hard in his treatment with sinners and failures. And now this blessed Jesus is no longer the friend of sinners. The way he always has been perceived as the friend of sinners. One of the biggest things we know about Jesus that drew so many people to Jesus was his love for sinners and his mercy with people who had failed. That Jesus often, unlike so many, he was so compassionate with people who failed. He was merciful and gracious and forgiving. And that would drastically disrupt his following if he said to go ahead and execute her. 
because of the scripture. Not to mention, at this time, the Roman Empire had taken away from the Jewish people the right to exercise capital punishment or the death sentence. So if Jesus said, yes, the law says to, to kill her, so we should stone her to death, if Jesus would have just answered that way, honor the law, then people also would have said, ha-ha, you're a lawbreaker, insurrection, this man's a rebel. The Romans would rush right in and they would seize him as the result of him saying it. So they're thinking, understand, all right, this is a catch-22. If he says, let her go, there we go, we got him. If he says, stone her, there we go, we got him. So they think they've got him trapped in this setup. So you can almost sense they're saying, so what do you say? And they're probably snickering underneath their breath and salivating, thinking they have Jesus caught here. And verse 6 says that Jesus doesn't answer. Instead, look at it. It says he stooped down. He wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I like that. Jesus ignored them. Maybe sometimes it's spiritual to ignore people. I might be twisting the scripture, so I'll be careful. <laughs> as they expose this poor woman here and disgrace her and just accuse her, trying to chap Jesus, he basically ignores their question at first. You see what it says there? It says he stoops down. Now, again, isn't that interesting? Perhaps maybe to take the attention and the shame off of this poor woman. Maybe he stoops down so people would look at him and what he was doing and they'd stop staring at this poor woman who's utterly humiliated and disgraced at this moment. Maybe he stoops down to be closer to her because maybe she's on the ground just cowering in utter shame as she's got her head bowed down so Jesus stoops down to, to be closer to her to maybe kind of shield her. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. And it says as well here that Jesus starts writing on the ground and the scripture says as if to indicate that he didn't hear what they were saying. No, I like that. That's another way of Jesus basically in his actions saying, quite frankly, I'm ignoring you right now. In your attitude, in your sinful heart condition, in your utter cruelty and how you're handling this matter of this woman's failure, quite frankly, I'm not interested in your attitude at all. I don't agree with it. And Jesus shows here he was not interested in their accusations of her sin or their desire for her punishment. He knows, again, it's not being done with any sincerity to do what's righteous. They have an evil ulterior motive. And again, as I said, Jesus knew this. They cared nothing for this woman. They cared nothing, obviously, for her dignity, even as a person, in the way that they're treating her in this. And very likely, they even set her up purposely to just use her in this scheme. Again, I haven't asked the question yet, but perhaps you're already thinking of it anyway. Where's the man? Where's the man in the whole process? Leviticus chapter 20, we read it earlier, said that you were to put to death both the adulterer and the adulteress. Last I check, it takes two to tango in this kind of stuff. Two people participate in the process. But it's interesting, the man is nowhere to be found. Which just seems to further indicate, again, their condition, their purpose in doing this. Perhaps, again, it may be speculation, but I can't help to wonder, perhaps did one of them, even in their own selfishness with their scheme, say, hey, I'll tell you what, how about you selfishly seduce this woman and you can gratify yourself a little and then we'll come walking in when the stage is set and catch you in the act of adultery. 
So then we can drag her down to the temple and catch Jesus in this whole great plot that we think, well, we thought this through and we'll, we'll really snare him and bring him down now. Or did they pay somebody to trap this woman in this process to take advantage of her vulnerabilities and her weakness? Either way, if this was legitimate and sincere, there should have been both parties present and they're not, which just is further indication of their hard attitude. And can I just say truly how sad and selfish people can be in the way they treat people? I mean, I mean is that a tragic picture of how cruel people can be? And the way that human beings, quite honestly, for their own pleasure and purposes, will just use a person and then cast them aside as soon as they're done with them. I mean, this is just a travesty to see this. And talk about on top of that, cold-hearted and critical and rude mistreatment of a person who has just failed. To treat a person like that after they've already failed to publicly expose her to painfully accuse her in front of many people. I have to say, isn't it amazing you notice in the story kind of how comfortable the religious leaders seem to be in this story here, being very self-righteous and critical of this woman and her sin, yet completely ignoring the fact of their own sin? And more than that, their own sin even in this very incident? As I said earlier... Please don't forget, they're guilty of quite a bit of sin themselves, and even in this very process. They're guilty of the sins of hypocrisy, deception, a very critical spirit, being very cold-hearted and cruel in how they're treating this woman, abusing her for their own self-interest and treating her horribly in the midst of her failure. And let's be honest with ourselves. Sadly, harsh treatment and a critical spirit towards those who have failed in sin is sometimes something we can all fail in. It's an area we can all be guilty of of ourselves at times. Somebody fails in some way. Maybe they you know, get entangled in some form of sin or a moral failure. And as a result, we're then very harsh and cruel in the way we treat them and relate to them afterwards as the result of that failure. And maybe sometimes that's because it causes great emotional pain to us but I hate to say it doesn't justify it. It doesn't justify it. And somebody fails in some way or, and then we further disgrace and humiliate them after their failure, broadcast to even more people what they've done by going around talking about it. Oh, could you pray for me? I'm talking to more people because I need more prayer. No, you're talking to more people not because you need more prayer. Let's just be very honest about it. You're talking to more people because you can't get your hurt under control and so you're, you're just talking to more and more people. How many people do you need to talk to about it and keep expressing the details and broadcasting their failure further? And we can all be guilty of these same things, you know, almost wanting to see them suffer, finding ways afterwards to, to stir up problems for them because of their failure. And so, you know, we, we, we kind of chuck our own little stones at them. We kind of may do it secretly, but, you know, we, we want to, I'm going to get my stone throw in. And, and we can do this kind of thing. We can all be just as guilty, all the while being so laser-focused on someone else's failure or moral error. And somehow, isn't it amazing how we overlook or sometimes even just ignore the sin that we're guilty of, both in our lives generally or perhaps sometime even in how we're now relating to them as the result of their failure. And as the result of their failure, we're now failing and sinning as well. 
in the way that we're treating them. And look, when we do that, though other people may enjoy our accusations, Jesus seems to indicate from what I see in the Bible here that he would say to you, uh, quite honestly, I'm not interested in the way you're behaving. I'm not interested in it at all. And it says here that he knelt down and acted as if he didn't even hear them in the midst of their cruelty and their critical spirit. Oftentimes people ask, of course, from verse 6 here, what was Jesus writing on the ground? It says he knelt down and he wrote on the ground. Here's the answer. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It's silent. Anything we could wonder would really just be speculation. It is interesting. This is the only time we have recorded of Jesus writing something. It's interesting as well. The last time in the Bible you see the finger of God writing something. Do you remember what it was? The Ten Commandments. So I don't know. Maybe here is the finger of God in the person of Jesus writing down a few of the other commands of Scripture that they were guilty of violating as he's kind of quietly writing on the ground and they're reading. The word they're right is katagraphe in the Greek. It's a compound word. Literally, it means to write against as if you would write an indictment against someone which is interesting he is knelt down and he catagraphe he he wrote against is a term that's used there so i don't know perhaps was jesus even maybe doing something like writing down in the in the ground there as they're all looking on wondering what he's doing as he start to write simeon birkenstein july 14th 31 a.d and all of a sudden simeon went ooh, that wasn't a good day yeah, I remember that. We don't know. But Jesus here draws the attention off of the woman and it says, verse 7, as we go on, when they continued asking, so they're getting frustrated because he's not giving them their answer. They kept saying, tell us, answer us. What, what do you say? They think they've got him in his trap. Answer us. He raised himself up, it says, and said, verse 7, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So Jesus answers their question, but he doesn't answer it either way they think that he's going to answer. This catch-22 question they try and throw to catch Jesus in a trap, he gives a masterful, brilliant response which perfectly in the answer upholds the law of God and at the same time humbles them, exposing their sin so they would realize their own sin we see in the story in the process. They said, look, Moses said in Leviticus 20, this woman guilty of adultery deserves to be stoned to death. But Jesus also knew that Deuteronomy 17 declared something additional. There it said, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses and the hands of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death and afterwards the hands of the people. In other words, the person or the people group that sincerely were genuine eyewitnesses and they just happened to see the crime happen. They were just an eyewitness, not a participant that became an eyewitness. They were just an eyewitness. They were to initiate the execution process. So what you have Jesus saying here in verse 7 in essence is this. Since you are so zealous to carry out the punishment of this woman's sin, let's do this. How about he who is without sin among you right in this midst, in this very process? If you're not guilty of some sin in the midst of this process yourself, this whole little episode and scheme, if you're not doing anything wrong, if you're 100% pure and innocent in your heart, 
and you're not doing anything wrong in the midst of this, then how about you, since you're an honest, sincere eyewitness, how about you start the execution process? And Jesus masterfully here addresses this, revealing that he knows in relation to that specific situation, their sinful hearts were quite honestly just as guilty, or who knows, maybe more guilty from God's standard, in that actual process than the woman. Now, now let me say something here. Be careful. Jesus is not indicating here in verse 7 that there is never a time to confront someone's sin. That there is never a right occasion to exercise discipline toward another person's sin. If that was the case, quite frankly, God would be robbing every parent of the opportunity to properly raise their kids. Can you picture that? You try and correct your six-year-old and they say, He who is without sin... Cast the first stone. Don't spank my bottom. I mean, it would be ridiculous. I mean, this is not what Jesus is saying here. This is not a blanket principle to shield and excuse so that sin is never questioned or that sin is never addressed because we're all sinful, so therefore somehow absolutely no one ever has the right to challenge or confront another person about their sin or to exercise discipline in regards to sin. Look, the Bible teaches in its context and entirety there are times to confront sin properly, that sin is to be rebuked. It is to be, uh, if you would, confronted. It is, there is even a time for discipline and even church discipline. We can't take that statement of Jesus there and twist it out of context. That's not what Jesus was saying there. What Jesus is saying is to these religious leaders, whatever one of you is here and you're not guilty of some sin in this whole little episode here, then you're going to start the execution process. That's what Jesus was saying there. Sin in relation to this particular matter. Now, this, unfortunately, as I said, becomes something that people try and use. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, if, if there was a backslider's Bible, this would be the most highlighted verse in all of, all of the backslider Bible. Whoever's out sin, cast the first stone. You've perhaps talked to people before. I hope you've never said it. I've had people say it to me. Well, don't judge me, man. Whoever's out sin, let him cast the first stone. Look, that's a distortion of what Jesus is saying here. Now, let me just say this. However, if in a situation like these religious leaders, Jesus was questioning that they were guilty of sin in, in participating in this process, if, however, there is a situation where you are guilty of participating in sin in direct connection to another person's sin, I would just say, therefore, it's best not to be so harsh in that situation. It's probably better not to be so critical as their judge because, quite honestly, you share in the midst of maybe why they're involved in that sin or have participated or, or entered into that sin. And there's, if there's some type of a, a mutual cooperation in how the sin came about or the way you're connected to it, I would just say be careful. Don't get so overly judgmental and be so quick to accuse but perhaps realize, you know, like those religions, I, I, maybe I share a little guilt in this too. And Jesus has convicted me of some of my error. Look how the story goes on as Jesus says, who's without among you without sin, throw the first stone. Verse 8 says, then again, look what he does. He stoops down on the ground and he begins to write once again. So this is masterful. Jesus sort of lets this silent pause and just lets his word now settle on their hearts because he knows the Holy Spirit is going to bring conviction to them. So he just pauses after he says that 
And verse 9 says, those who heard it, look what happens, being convicted by their conscience of their own sin, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. So the Lord's work in their heart here calls them to begin to experience conviction and recognition of their own sin. And that's how Jesus handles sin. He wants us to have recognition of our own sin. Those who heard being convicted by their own conscience. Again, conviction is that feeling of guilt we feel inside our soul because we know or realize that we're wrong in our attitude or our thoughts or maybe we've just done or said something wrong or sinful and we feel that sense of inward guilt. Notice how conviction came. It says those who heard what Jesus said were convicted. Those who heard. Conviction came when they heard God speak to them. Jesus was God in flesh. So when Jesus spoke, they were hearing the voice of God, or you could say they were hearing the word of God. And when they heard the voice of God, the word of God, that resulted in proper, healthy conviction. And let me say, that's how conviction over sin is supposed to happen in people's lives. That they hear the voice of God themselves. And that brings inward conviction because it's something between them and God. So as they hear the voice of the Lord, conviction comes, it says, upon their conscience. Our conscience is that internal moral judge that God's created inside of every one of us. It's that thing that's been talking to you from as early as you can remember in your life as God puts it inside of us and our conscience examines what we're doing or examines what we're thinking or how we're behaving and it testifies to us regarding what's right and wrong regarding what's acceptable and unacceptable. And it's sort of the antenna, if you would, in a person where God speaks to us in our lives, in our conscience. And that's where we experience conviction and guilt when we've done what's wrong. So as they're convicted now, it says they begin to walk away. The oldest left first, probably because the older you are, the more sin you have to be guilty of, right? And once they experience conviction, notice what happens. They walk away. And I have to say, attached to that, once they experience conviction over their own sin, it's amazing how they lose interest in accusing and condemning other people for their sin. That's kind of what happens. It's a good thing when conviction of our own sin comes into our lives because all of a sudden we realize, you know, I'm not really too interested in condemning somebody else anymore because I, I'm convicted in my own conscience of my own sin. It's a beautiful, healthy thing that happens in our lives. Well, look what goes on. Verse 9, it says, Jesus then was left all alone with the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus raised up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? So Jesus and the guilty woman are there. She knows she's failed. They're left alone. The accusers leave. I imagine all the onlookers, shamed and embarrassed, kind of walk away as well, feeling a sense of conviction. And at this point, Jesus begins to directly address her heart and deal with her sin now also. But he does it in a private way, in a personal way. Jesus wants her, listen, he wants her to face and work through her own sin and wrongdoing. What she did do was wrong. He wants her to see the area, but it's an issue of failure that needs to be worked through directly between her and God. And so he waits till she's alone and she privately is with Jesus now. He wants her to recognize her own sin. But notice that Jesus, how he handles sin and failure, he shows dignity to this woman. 
He shows compassion to her and his treatment, even amidst her very great failure. Do you see the way that he speaks to her? He says to her, woman, same term he used for his mother back in John chapter 2. And that term, woman, in that culture, it was a term of endearment, a term of respect. It's a way we might say today, ma'am. May I help you, ma'am? Or miss. Can I help you, miss? It's a term of respect, of courtesy. He does not say to this woman right after a failure, harlot, get up on your feet. He doesn't say, home wrecker, you listen up. He says, woman. Woman. He's very dignified. He's very compassionate. He gently, but honestly, is going to bring her through a process where she is, in a sense, having to face her own sin. He reminds her the accusations of her sin are true and real, that her accusers were correct in the sense judicially that she deserved to be punished for her sin. He doesn't eliminate that reality. And look, it's important that we all realize and fully accept the error of our own sin, that we are guilty of our own sin. And, and that's a healthy thing for all of us to truthfully realize our sin does deserve punishment. And we are wrong and we shouldn't justify what we've done. And that we accept that we do deserve punishment or in a sense, biblically, eternal condemnation. Yet Jesus compassionately sends everybody away and he says to the woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Has no one punished you? She then answers Jesus. Look at it. She says, no one, Lord. Look at that. No one, Lord. As she encounters the love and compassion of Jesus, something happened in her heart in the midst of the experience with Jesus where she is humbled and broken over her own failure and sin. And her heart seems to melt before the Lord. Her heart and spirit is broken inside and she's now moved to bow her own personal will to Jesus and she calls him Lord which was a term that speaks of I surrender, I submit my ruler, the rulership of my life over to you, and she acknowledges him as Lord. And let me just say, that's the desire of Jesus for everyone, no matter how great of a failure they are. No matter how deep their level of sin may be, Jesus desires that we become broken in our spirit over our own guilt and our own sin. And that in the midst of that, we would humbly bow at his feet as a failure individually and embrace his lordship. Lord, whatever you want for my life, because I've made a mess of it. And I just admit that and I need help. And this is the heart of Jesus for everyone. And why is that so beautiful? Because let's remember, at that very moment, the only person who had a right to throw stones and execute and condemn her was Jesus. Because he was the only one there without sin. And the one who could condemn her, look how the story concludes, verse 11. He says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The only one that could condemn her or punish her, Jesus, the heart of Jesus towards sin of a guilty person. You see it. He wants to release them from the punishment of their sin. And he wants them to also refrain from the practice. He says, neither do I condemn you. Jesus is saying, though you do deserve punishment, and I could perform punishment as the Lord of all, I choose to forgive you. I choose to pardon you. I choose to release you. Jesus extends pardon and forgiveness because he knows what he's about to do upon the cross for her. 
and for each one of us. That's the heart of Jesus manifested towards a person in failure. He wants to be gracious and merciful to us in our sin. His desire is to release us from the punishment of our sin. That's why he absorbed the punishment of our sin upon the cross in himself. Today, some of you, perhaps even here in this room, you are struggling over your own sin and your own failures. The Holy Spirit's been convicting your heart and there's a level of regret and guilt you sense within. Would you hear the voice of Jesus this morning saying to you, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. And look, others may condemn you. Others will. But that's not how I feel towards you. I don't condemn you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been living in condemnation and punishing yourself, settling for less and thinking you have to somehow, you've ruined it too bad and you're punishing yourself. Can I say, listen, if Jesus doesn't condemn you, what right do you have to condemn yourself? Accept his forgiveness. Accept his pardon gratefully and serve him as Lord appreciatively. And let me just say this too. If Jesus does not enjoy condemning people when they fail, God help us when we find ourselves doing that to people. God help us. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, but he does say to her, look at it, go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't condone or excuse her sin. He asks her to make a break with it. He says to her here, look, I forgive you, but this does need to stop. This needs to stop. And, and, and this should never be repeated again. It's wrong. It's time for repentance. Jesus doesn't just take away, listen, he doesn't just take away our punishment for sin so we can go back and keep practicing the same thing again. Jesus takes away our punishment for sin, but he also wants us to make a break with our sinful patterns and practices. Because to go right back into it would just be disrespectful to him and it's destructive to us. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. No sense of fear or punishment. If you are in Christ Jesus positionally, you're righteous and you can serve God without guilt or regret or shame no matter what you've done because the blood of Jesus is sufficient. You are cleansed. You are righteous by your faith in Jesus Christ. And you don't have to live cowering down. No, there's no condemnation. It's gone. You're freed from it. That's the blessed privilege of the Christian and that is the blessed opportunity for the unsaved person is condemnation can be lifted off of you if you put your faith in Jesus Christ if you say Jesus I know that I'm guilty but I believe what you did was sufficient for me forgive me of my sin Jesus I bow my will and my heart to you save me forgive me Help me to live for you as my Lord. And that's the opportunity for any person who's still carrying that guilt of their sin because they have not yet let Jesus, this Jesus, the loving Jesus, take that away from them. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?